All right, reminder, we have on the first page here, here are the key things, the principles for conflict. This is the grammar. What does that mean? In anything when you're learning, what you have is you have the little pieces that you need to figure out what they're for. You see the plan, how it's all put together, and then you figure out how to use it, use all the parts, and figure out how they fit together, how they get used together effectively. Okay, so these stages typically called grammar, logic, and rhetoric. So you have the grammar, the components, and as you memorize those, as you become familiar with them, you start to also learn how they fit together as a system. That's the logic or the dialectic of the parts. And then you figure out how to use them well. You, you learn the tactics of them. You learn how to make it beautiful. You learn how to use them in such a way that makes men want to sing. And so this idea of the rhetoric of it, the way that you can figure out how to use it beautifully. So we can, starting out, be sort of clunky with it. And so we kind of have to hold up our notes, and we go, so I'm in a conflict, and I'm totally going to glorify God while I'm conflicting with you. And let me get the log out, and you think, and you're looking for the things. And you go, okay, here's what I need to rebuke you for. Should we reconcile now? And so this clunkiness of the first parts gets replaced with sort of a second nature. It becomes a habit. You begin to understand it. You remember it. You kind of just operate off of it. It populates your mind quickly. It's like when you're talking to somebody, you don't have to search for the word to speak in your native language. They just populate into your mind and you can converse in a way that is fluid a natural feeling. And so resolving conflict becomes more and more natural the more you study and meditate on the way that God has commanded us to resolve conflict, and it becomes easier and easier. And so as we think about different parts of the Word of God, that's true. The law teaches us our need for a Savior. It restrains our evil, and it's a lamp to our feet that shows us the way of wisdom. And so as we think about that, as we think about conflict resolution, this is a part of the law of God. It's teaching us what we're to do, how we deal with things. And so when we think about apologies, for example, as we remember this, we go, okay, I, if I'm going to repent of something, I need to repent to all the parties that are involved. I need to make sure to communicate in a way that's plain and clear so that my apology does not seem weaselly and make it clear the difference between an apology and a non-apology. If I do repent, I need to admit specific wrongs, acknowledge the harms that flow from it, accept the consequences that are just based upon the harms and the, the wrong committed, commit to alter my behavior and put on the specific virtues that would replace the vices, and to ask forgiveness. And as you are familiar with it, that will flow. It will flow naturally, and your apologies will feel more natural and feel more sincere. In the beginning, they will not feel as sincere. They will not feel as smooth. And so it will almost seem mechanical. And so here's what I'm asking for, everybody. I'm asking that we have grace with each other, we be merciful to each other as we learn these habits, and that we try to communicate with each other in a way where we're encouraging each other to, to try to apologize in this way, when it's a major thing. If, if, it, if it got to step two, if it got to step two, it certainly needs a full apology, right? And if you had to bring somebody else in to deal with the thing, you definitely, if you're going to resolve this stuff, if you acknowledge wrong, make sure you're giving a, a full apology. If it was real quick, somebody brings something, hey, this was wrong, 
You go, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. That was, that was wrong, absolutely. Okay. Anything else need to be done here? Are we good? Are we good? You know, that's okay. But, but if it was a big thing, even in step one, you would kind of go, okay, this was wrong. Here were harms. You know, here, here's, the, here's the consequences that I, that I deserve, and, and I'm going to alter this. I'm going to do this thing, and, and, and I, I, can, I, you know, can I have your forgiveness? You know, so you're going to walk through it in a more formal way. And the more you get used to walking through formal apologies, the more natural they'll be, and the more naturally they'll kind of flow even in um, less formal situations. And you will find that people um, are, it's far more easy for peace to flow out of that. Um, as you think about forgiveness, right, I encourage you, as you're getting used to this, that you think about when you're giving forgiveness, that you, before you extend forgiveness really on here, remind yourself of these promises. They review it. Or if you say, I forgive you, okay, fine, go back and meditate on what that means. What are these promises of forgiveness? Okay, I, I am not going to let this thing be a thing that stands between us anymore. I'm not going to just sit on this to be bitter. I am not going to just bring it up as a weapon against you in the future. I am not going to talk about it with other people as a way to tear you down, right? And so you're reminding yourself of that. And, and you're going to catch yourself doing some of the stuff that you've promised not to do if you're not used to this. And you need to acknowledge it when you do. Repent inwardly and outwardly. right? Inwardly before God. And then outwardly for the sake of peace to the people that you wrongly took that to. Or, or if you bring it up against somebody and you weaponize it against them, you, you apologize to them at the time that you've done it. right? So, so that, that thing, you're catching yourself earlier and earlier. And when you've got bad habits, it's impossible to immediately break them off and to never do those things again. But it is possible to catch them earlier and earlier and earlier. And eventually, you can catch them before they come out. And so that idea that you're, you're developing these habits, these sanctified habits, where there's sort of a rehabituation. And we as a culture want to encourage that with each other. So remember, if there's conflict, we have five ways where this thing can end, and it's peaceable, as opposed to peace faking. Okay? Peace faking is acting like there's peace when there's not. Peace, peace, no peace. Okay? We, don't, we don't want peace faking. The other thing is, we don't want unnecessary warlike behavior where there's this, you know, everything's always you know, code red and the nukes are always in the air. What we want is to be peaceable where we use conflict to bring about peace and real peace. So the ways that gets done. Somebody does something you think might be evil, you're not sure, you interpret it charitably. Right? There's, there's something there. It could be interpreted one of two ways. Bad, not bad. Interpret it charitably. Choose to believe it's not bad. If you're a little bit too worried about it, you can't get over it, Okay, bring it up to them. Talk to them about it. Seek to resolve it. If you overlook something, you think it's pretty clear it's bad, but you think it's overlookable, which we'll talk about that in more detail today. Okay? Great. Actually overlook it. If you find you're simmering on it and you're bitter about it and you're not actually overlooking it, you're just pretending to overlook it, that's not overlooking. That means you need to bring it to them. Just try to deal with it. The Lord's Supper is a good check for that. Okay? First of all, we're told to not go to sleep angry. Okay? If you're still angry... Get it under control. Repent before God. You know, if it's righteous anger, okay, great. 
but you got to take it to the person to resolve it. If you can't get that under control, communicate it, prepare to communicate it, hand it to God, say you're going you're gonna to start to deal with this. The going to sleep is sort of a commitment to resolve conflict. Secondly, the Lord's Supper is a callback. So we have our ordinary daily going to sleep, doing private worship, doing family worship. These are all things that remind us of the need to resolve conflict, to deal with peace. And then, so whenever you're coming to the altar, whenever you're coming to worship God, but the Lord's Supper, which occurs on the Lord's Day, is a really big callback. And if we come to the Lord's Supper and haven't dealt with peace, we need to understand that when you take it, you are swearing again to resolve conflict. And so you need to then, either you to, if there's ability beforehand, you take action and you seek to make sure there's either something on the calendar or the thing's resolved. If it's simple, it can be resolved. If it's not simple, maybe it's on the calendar. But the point is there's a commitment to resolving the conflict. And if it's an ongoing thing, that's there. So there's, you can't just pretend to overlook. You have to have things in process. If somebody gives you a defense and you realize that your accusation is wrong, you simply acknowledge their defense, withdraw the accusation, and you have a charitable interpretation. You're now interpreting them in the way that the defense communicated. That's, uh, that's option three. Option four, the person um, acknowledges your rebuke and gives external repentance. And so you accept that as a repentance that it restores things, that it reconciles. And lastly... If you're not able to resolve things, you escalate to the next level. Matthew 18, step one is private. Step two has witnesses. Step three is the courts of the church. And at any of those stages, there could be reconciliation through a just defense or external repentance. And ultimately, at the final stage, if a person is in sin, will not repent, they need to be removed from fellowship and they aren't a friend anymore. You still love them as an enemy, but they're not a friend. And what you're doing is you're desiring their good by trying to see them brought to repentance, and you cut off casual interaction. And what you do is you only do necessary commerce or public duties, um, like in things in the civil sphere. And if you're a part of the same household, then you have to deal with the ordinary duties of the household. That would obviously be a difficult situation. So page two. So that's the reminder. That's the, that's the grammar. I'm going to keep reminding you of those things because these are the basics here. My goal is for that to be laid down repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly so that you have those things in mind. The four G's of conflict, the seven A's of a biblical apology and repentance, the four promises of forgiveness, and the ways that you can end a conflict and actually have real peace as opposed to peace faking. So we're continuing in the Ninth Commandment. This morning we talked about um, the Ninth Commandment in terms of its positive duties. We're going to be talking about the negative duties. Um, I, at the end of the section of the Ninth Commandment, was going to talk to you about principles for interpreting the law, and I've decided to do that now before continuing with the Ninth Commandment. So when you think about the law of God, okay, this, these are principles to help you to get more profitable reading out of the law of God. Okay, so... What are rules, this is from the Westminster Larger Catechism, and if any of you are desirous to look at any of the proof texts, there are the teal books on the bottom down there, there's a couple up there, you're welcome to have them, look at the proof texts. 
All right, so question 99. What rules are to be observed for the right understanding of the Ten Commandments? Answer. For the right understanding of the Ten Commandments, these rules are to be observed. One, the law is perfect and binds everyone to full conformity in the whole man under the righteousness thereof and unto entire obedience forever. So as to require the utmost perfection of every duty and to forbid the least degree of every sin. This is called, this doctrine is called the perfection of the law. The perfection of the law. It addresses you in full. And it addresses life in full. And so what we have is the law requires a complete obedience. It requires that you fulfill all of its positive demands. It requires that you not fail at any point. So no failure to conform and no transgressing beyond the boundaries. So what does that do? When you take that seriously and you think about the perfection of the law, you're going to say, woe is me. I am doomed. I am guilty. I am helpless. I need a savior. Great. You got the point. That is what the law is designed to do. It is to show you your need of a Savior. That is the first use of the law. It is a mirror to show you your need of a Savior. Two, that the law is spiritual and so reaches the understanding, will, affections, and all other powers of the soul as well as words, works, and gestures. Okay? This doctrine is called the spirituality of the law. The spirituality of the law. Not only does it cover all of life, and not only are we required to perfectly apply it everywhere, but it reaches to the soul. It reaches to the inward parts. So Jesus says, for example, if you hate a man in your heart, you've murdered him. If you lust after a woman in your heart, you committed adultery with him. There are ways in which we are breakers of the law merely by having bad desires. False thoughts, bad desires make us guilty. So what does this do? This makes you go, woe is me. I am a breaker of the law and I need a savior. That's great. That's the first use of the law. It's a mirror and it shows you your need of a savior. Are you noticing a pattern? As you study the law in more detail, as you understand the perfection of the law, the spirituality of the law, you begin to see the depth of your sin more fully. The unity and the simplicity of the laws of fun. When it's number three. Let's look at that. That one and the same thing in diverse respects is required or forbidden in several commandments. The, apo- uh, sorry, the prophet James, the prophet James puts it like this. If you break the law in one point, you've broken it in all. So how is that? Any one sin you can find, by three degrees to Kevin Bacon, you can find a way of showing how that law is violated by any sin. Okay? So, for example, if I steal from you, I'm obviously breaking the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. I'm also coveting Tenth Commandment. I'm also 
by my expression, lying that this property is mine when it is not. I'm breaking the Ninth Commandment. I am also having an immoderate desire for the goods of this world, which is a violation of the Seventh Commandment, to have moderation about pleasures. I am also doing something that steals time from you. And it's a sort of minor murder. Because when you steal money, you're really just stealing people's time. And so it's a violation of the Sixth Commandment. And it dishonors your legitimate rights, and so therefore dishonors your authority in the fifth commandment. And it is harming the work that you're doing and making it harder for you to keep the Sabbath, so it violates the fourth commandment. And it blasphemes God, who is the giver of property rights, and violates the third commandment. And it makes an idol of that property, and therefore violates the first commandment. And I am giving service to that mammon by taking it from you, and therefore giving false worship to it and violating the second commandment. So you see... Everything, every sin is a violation of the whole law. You can show how any sin is a violation of the whole law. And so that is the unity of the law and the simplicity of the law. Ultimately, all the law is summed up in love God. You can then further try to make a longer summary, love God, love neighbor. You can have the longer summary, Ten Commandments. Or you can list out all of the imperatives of the Scripture. That's the simplicity of the law. And so that helps to show you the depth of your sin. And the appropriate response is to say, Woe is me. I am guilty and a breaker of the law, and I am in need of a Savior. And that's good, because that's the first use of the law, which is a mirror to show you your need of a Savior. Four, that as where a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden. And where a sin is forbidden... The contrary duty is commanded. So where a promise is annexed, the contrary threatening is included. And where a threatening is annexed, the contrary promise is included. Okay, so this is the completeness of the law. And that means a failure to do a positive duty, a lack of conformity, or a breaking of some prohibition, right, transgression, those things... Make complete pairs. So the commandment to worship the true God forbids you from worshiping anything else. The commandment to worship God in the way he appoints forbids you from worshiping him or anything else in any other way. So we have the positive commandments to do stuff and we have negative forbiddings to not do stuff. And they are complete. The completeness of the law shows us the way in which the law covers all of life. It shows us that the law is sufficient to cover all of the things that we should do. And this is further emphasized in point five. But what this does is it helps you to realize, point four helps you to realize how little we think about the law compared to how much we ought to think about the law. We fail to glorify God as much as we ought because we don't think about the commandments he gives to us that he tells us this is a good way to live. And so that shows us, as a mirror, our need of a Savior. So I want to think about four just a little bit more with you for a second. The idea that a duty commanded implies a contrary sin is forbidden. So think about this. So, if we're forbidden from covet, coveting, right, 
Covetousness is an absence of satisfaction or joy or contentedness. And if we're not content with the goodness of God, if we're not content with what he has provided for us, then that discontent is a failure to properly value God and what he has given to us. And so that discontent is sin. That's what covetousness is. And so the positive duty, when we're told to not covet, we are being commanded to be satisfied with God. We are being commanded to be content with God and what he has given to us. Now, all the commandments have that sort of a relationship. So, it goes on and talks about the idea of promises versus threats. Okay, the fifth commandment says, honor, the, honor your father and your mother that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God gives to you. So there's a promise of long life. That means the breaking of it has a threat. What's the threat? The threat is a threat of short life for dishonoring legitimate authority. I don't know about you, but dishonoring authority is one of the ways that I could best give a shortcut to life ending quickly, right? If you, if, you, if you want to walk out on the street, disobey some of the just laws that exist, like just start walking around slapping people on the street and then refuse arrest, see how far it gets you. See how long you live. And I imagine by the first, second, or third time you do this exercise, you will manage to get yourself shot. So the idea of not honoring legitimate authority not respecting other people's rights is a great way to end your life fast. That's a part of the structure. But there's also a supernatural, this is part of the structure of reality, but there's also a supernatural way in which God providentially governs and brings about the fulfillment of his promises and the fulfillment of his threats. One of those that's kind of interesting, if you think about the fifth commandment, one of the ways that, that heads of state, governors of nations, are supposed to honor the fifth commandment is by honoring the limits on their own authority by not invading other countries unjustly. And you will find men like Hitler or Napoleon who violate that willy-nilly and don't really care about the rights of other governments to preserve their own sovereignty, that the response is often that they overreach and they manage to get themselves to lose being at the height of power because of that tendency to overreach. The, the failure to care about the rights of other legitimate governments is something that results in the collapse of your own good judgment and overextension and the throwing away of your own resources, power, and eventually your life. So we can see that the connection of threats and promises. All right. Five. That what God forbids is at no time to be done. What he commands is always our duty. And every particular duty is not to be done all, all times. Okay. So in other words, you never do any harm. You should never break the law of God. You should never, ever, 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 ever do anything that God forbids. There are no times when it's the time to do something that God forbids. Zero times are the times for that. And at the same time, we have these positive commands. And the positive commands are not to be done at all times. Right? You... You might have a duty to exercise and a duty to eat. If you do them both at the same time, that will be fun to watch. So if you try to do all duties at the same time, you will find it is impossible. 
So these are the laws of do no harm. That comes from Romans 13. Libertarians pretend like they made it up without the Bible. And there's also the law of best and highest use. It's your duty to figure out the best thing to do every second. Now, for you, this might have the same effect it has on me, which is it reminds me of how much I fail to keep the law of God, which is interesting because the law of God is a mirror that shows you your need of a Savior. So the best and highest use of every moment. So we, we aren't to do every good work at any particular time. We are to do a particular good work at any particular time. And we should always pick the best good work for that moment, given the circumstances. Six, that under one sin or duty, all of the same kind are forbidden or commanded, together with all the causes, means, occasions, and appearances thereof, and provocations thereunto. This is the principle of heads of doctrine. So in other words, the Ten Commandments are big heads of doctrine that organize all the commandments of God. Okay, so the, for example, the Fourth Commandment, which teaches us to work six days and to rest one, would give us all sorts of duties of diligence and all sorts of duties about worship and all sorts of duties about the usage of time. The idea of holy time itself is there. And, and so we, we have a number of applications there. That's the big category. And then we would have case laws in the Bible. And they would say things like, if this, then that. Okay, those are case laws. If, then statements are case laws. They teach us how to interpret that. And then there are examples. There are approved and disapproved examples. So, for example, with the Lord's Day, with the Sabbath, we have Jesus giving us the approved example of he and his disciples having them, his disciples pick grain to eat it on the Lord's Day, on the Sabbath, because it was, they were on their way to perform other duties, and it was necessary that they eat. And so picking grains is a type of harvesting, taking off the exterior of the wheat is a type of threshing, and then they're eating it. And so they're doing work, they're harvesting on the Lord's Day. And Jesus says that was approved, and it gives us the principle of duties of necessity. We also have the idea of him healing on the Lord's Day, and it gives us the principle of works of mercy. So those are cases, approved examples, where he is showing us how to interpret the fourth commandment. You have a big category, fourth commandment. You have case laws, if then, and you've got examples. Okay, you organize those together, and so the Ten Commandments are heads of doctrine that organize a bunch of information. Seven. And by the way, the fact that we don't have all of the information and that we find ourselves ignorant reminds us of the fact that we do not study the law of God as much as we should and is a mirror to us to show us our need of a Savior. Seven. That what is forbidden or commanded to ourselves, we are bound, according to our places, to endeavor that it may be avoided or performed by others according to the duty of their places. So, this is the equality of the law. It applies to us, it applies to others. It applies to others, it applies to us. And we need to consider the fact that we are all equal under the law. And we need to apply the law to ourselves. And we need to then take that and help others in the application of the law. Eight is similar. That in what is commanded to others, we are bound according to our places and callings to be helpful to them 
and to take heed of partaking with others in what is forbidden them, right? So you don't want to discourage somebody from, you know, you don't want to encourage somebody to do something with you and your kids while discouraging them to disobey their own parents, right? So this idea, you're going to say, oh, I'm going to help you to do your duty. We need to make sure we're obeying your parents while you're doing stuff with us, that kind of thing. There's a lot of that, but just as you interact with people, the need for them to to do what applies to them, and you want to encourage them in that, and you don't just lay burdens on them. You don't just say, you know, you need to be doing this thing, be better, but you say, look, this is your duty. Let me, let me help you to do this. You help, you seek to carry burdens with other people. Okay, so um, that's a part of what the diaconal ministry is for. That's a part of what hospitality is for. That's a part of what pastoral care is for. Is this idea of saying, this is your duty, and let me help you to do it. This is your duty, let me help you to do it. Now, oftentimes we just chicken out and we don't want to tell people what their duty is or we tell them their duty and we don't want to help them and that should serve as a mirror to show you your need of a Savior. So these are principles. All the Ten Commandments, you should apply this to as you read them and that will help you to see the depth of them. That also helps you to see how the larger catechism gets all of these applications. And when you see the proof texts, this all fits under this idea. They're taking the commandments and they're taking all these texts from all over the Bible and showing you, hey, here are applications or details that apply to the Ninth Commandment. And so that's why it's good to study those proof texts, because you can look at how those who came before us in the church organized a lot of these things. And you know what's interesting, by the way? A lot of these applications of these verses don't just originate with the Westminster Assembly. You know, Calvin, you can read about in his, in his, in his uh, commentary on Deuteronomy, you can find him applying a lot of the same verses to the same commandments. That's 100 years before the Westminster Assembly. He gets a lot of that from Peter Lombard in his sentences where he takes verses and organizes a lot of them uh, from the Middle Ages to do that. You can find this with Augustine and other people trying to organize this. This has been a work of the church throughout history, the effort to organize different verses and and categorize them underneath the Ten Commandments and and to organize those under the two great commandments, love God, love neighbor. Honestly, you find it in Romans 13 with the Apostle Paul when he explains all of those commandments that apply to neighbor and connects them to the love of neighbor. Okay, so 145. What are the sins forbidden in the Ninth Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Ninth Commandment are all prejudicing the truth and the good name of our neighbors, as well as our own good name, especially in public judicature. Fun word. I always like it. I say that like every time I say it too. I can't help myself. It's a fun word. It just is. It's a fun word. Judicature. Now when you leave here, just say that to yourself a little bit as you're walking to the car. Judicature. It's a fun word. Public judicature. And what is that talking about? That's the, the, the judicial systems of public entities. What are the public entities that God has made? The state and the church. Those are the two places with public judicature. So the sins forbidden in the Ninth Commandment are all prejudicing the truth and the good name of our neighbors as well as our own, especially in public judicature, giving false evidence, suborning false witnesses, wittingly appearing and pleading for an evil cause. Okay, so you notice after that first semicolon, the first part is laying out the negative in a, in a principle, prejudicing the truth and also prejudicing the good name of our neighbor or anybody else, especially 
in public justice. Then the rest of it's going to be a bunch of examples. You got this like half page block of eye bleeding text of examples of how you can do that. So here are examples of how you can prejudice the truth or prejudice the good name of your neighbor or yourself. You can give false evidence, suborn false witnesses, wittingly appear and plead for an evil cause, outface and overbear the truth, pass unjust sentence, call evil good, call good evil, reward the wicked according to the work of the righteous, and the righteous according to the work of the wicked. Do forgery, conceal the truth, undo silence in a just cause, hold your peace when iniquity calls for reproof from ourselves or complaint to others. Speaking the truth unseasonably. Speaking the truth maliciously. Speaking the truth to a wrong end. Perverting the truth to a wrong meaning. Speaking the truth in doubtful, equivocal expressions. <coughs> speaking the truth to the prejudice of truth in doubtful ways, equivocal ways, or to the prejudice of justice. Speaking untruth, lying, slandering, backbiting, detracting, false, or sorry, tail-bearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling, rash, harsh, and partial censuring, misconstructing intentions, words, and actions, flattering, vainglorious, boasting, thinking, or speaking too highly or too meanly of ourselves or others, denying the gifts and graces of God, aggravating smaller faults, hiding, excusing, or extenuating of sins when you're called to freely confess, unnecessary discovering of infirmities of others, raising false rumors, receiving and countenancing evil reports, and stopping our ears against just defense, evil suspicion, envying or grieving at the deserved credit of any, endeavoring or despairing, sorry, endeavoring or desiring to impair the deserved credit that people have, rejoicing in their disgrace, rejoicing in their infamy, scornful contempt or fond admiration, breach of lawful promises, neglecting such things as are of good report, and practicing or not avoiding ourselves, or not hindering what we can in others, such things as procure an ill name. There's a lot of examples of how you can prejudice the truth or prejudice your own good name or prejudice somebody else's good name. Now, let's talk about the meaning of some of these things. Okay, so first one, prejudicing the truth and the good name of our neighbors as well as our own good name. Okay. This involves taking actions to encourage people to make unjust judgments toward persons or propositions through means of invalid arguments, psychological weakness, and marketing tricks. Okay. Invalid arguments, psychological weakness, and marketing tricks. Okay. So one of the things that's you know, a well-known marketing trick is called the halo effect. You put something that people like or think well of with something else that you're trying to make other people like. And so one way that you can prejudice the truth is you can take evil and try to make it look beautiful or put it next to things that people like. Another way that you can prejudice the truth and the good name of your neighbor or of yourself. Um, well, first, sorry, we, we should be harmless as doves and we should not use these tricks to harm others unjustly. Okay, so... At the same time, we should be wise as serpents and we should know how to avoid giving the appearance of negatives and seek to avoid public relations traps. Okay, Jesus does an excellent example of this it, over and over again. 
he does battles, and the way he answers things is based upon, one, telling the truth, and two, he is seeking to deal with avoiding public relations traps a lot. Because a lot of the times, the Pharisees and Sadducees are trying to find a way to trap Jesus with his words. So one of the famous examples is, hey, Jesus, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Caesar was a tyrant and godless. So, Jesus' response, he says, give me a coin. Whose image is on the coin? Caesar's image? Cool. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Now, what does God own? Everything. What does Caesar own? Only the stuff that God authorizes him to own. Okay, so there are other texts of scripture that teach us more detail about how taxation works and what's lawful taxation and what's not. And on a basic level, Jesus' answer is you can pay him. It's not sin. And the point is basically that even an unlawful government is basically just a bandit saying, give me your wallet. And so even if you have a wicked government, it is not sin to hand them money. But they don't have a rightful claim on anything more than what God has given to them. Jesus masterfully deals with that in such a way that the effort to trap him was collapsed. And he also, not, not only did he not have the people hate him for it, but he also didn't have Caesar hate him for it. So Jesus was able to deal very well with avoiding marketing traps, avoiding the psychological weakness problems, and avoiding invalid arguments and being able to manage well how to avoid having something be clearly stated at a time that it would not be useful, that it would be unseasonable. So those are things that he does. So being wise as a serpent so that you know how to deal with people who are trying to prejudice the truth or your own good name or your neighbor's good name. So we are to be wise as a serpent and we are to know how to avoid giving the appearance of negatives and seek to avoid public relations traps. Jesus exemplifies this well. Okay, page four. So here is how, as a body of people, we fight prejudice. Okay, page four, D. Prejudice is fought in generally teaching people. Okay, teaching people the fullness of God's truth in Scripture. The law, all the commandments, and the gospel, all of the news. So we teach the whole of Scripture. Now, more narrowly, here's how you focus to combat prejudice. You teach people how to think logically. So you want people to understand logic, the laws of logic, how to deal with necessary inference, how to discover formal fallacies and informal fallacies. And so you study all of these various things that have to do with logic so that you know how to think rightly because logic is the way God thinks. Logic is the way God thinks. The Bible shows us logic all over. The very structure of the Word of God is logical. And there are logical arguments all over the Bible. The laws of logic are in the Bible in forms such as, for example, the law of identity. When we say A is A, God says, I am that I am. Right? That's the law of identity. So you can find that with the laws of logic. They are embedded 
in the very nature of scripture, but you can also find them in more and more explicit ways in logical argumentation. So the thinking logically helps you to avoid prejudice. Three, following biblical process for conflict resolution in accordance with the rules of decency and order established in God's word, that helps us to avoid making judgments wrongly. One, process requires us to think about things in a certain way. We think about the law of God. If I'm charging you, what law of God am I saying this violates? Why is this sin? Is it sin because I don't like it, or is it sin because God says don't do it, or he says you must do this? So that does that. It forces us to think carefully. Biblical process helps us to make sure that we are removing emotion more and more out of it. It slows things down. It makes sure we have time to deal with things. It makes sure we can bring others in. So there's increasing transparency. It helps us to avoid prejudice and harm of the truth. So it's designed to depersonalize conflict. The process that God gives is designed to depersonalize conflict, to make it so that we are looking at things, and you can even try to take your own actions and your own thoughts, kind of put them outside of yourself, and you examine them. And then you take responsibility for them. But the goal is to remove the emotion of it. Four. We teach people about the goal of seeking the glory of God and the good of God's people. And that conflict is for that. And so it helps you to think about things in terms of the goal. Rather than being to fulfill selfish desires, it is for the purpose of seeking to glorify God. So that helps you to refocus the purpose of the conflict and to examine your own motives. So those are the specific ways that the work of conflict resolution and doing it according to God's word and the general teaching of God's word and the teaching of how to use logic, these things are useful to help to remove prejudice. Now this is especially to be done in public judicature, which is why in courts, whether it's a church court or a civil court, everything goes more formal more formal. So there's a special duty to be careful in public process of conflict resolution in the courts of the church or of the state. Giving false evidence is a basic part of that, right? If you plant evidence on somebody, you say evidence was there that wasn't, you, you're, you're giving false evidence as a type of lying that is a type of false witness bearing. Asking people that you know are going to lie to give testimony. I'm not going to read through it right now, but 1 Kings 21, verses 1 through 17, the story of Naboth's vineyard. Naboth's vineyard, here's the short version. King Ahab liked Naboth's vineyard. He thought, I would like to have this. He offered to buy it. Naboth said, no, this vineyard was given to my forefathers by God. I'm not allowed to sell it off. I have a duty to keep it. I'm not going to sell it. Ahab goes home and cries. Jezebel says, what are you doing? You're the king. Like, just give me your signet ring. I'm going to take care of this. She then sends a letter to the elders and nobles of the town and says, I need you guys to find some scoundrels, just like useless guys, just the most worthless. And if you could please have them falsely accuse Naboth of blaspheming God and also the king, that would be fantastic. Then make sure he gets stoned to death. Okay, this is what Jezebel sends. The nobles and the elders go, Yes, that's fine. And they do it. And then when they do that, their response, they, they take care of that. They go through all the process. They got the two witnesses. There's the accusation. And afterwards, the end of the story is, look at, look at page 5. Verse 16. 
So it was, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab got up and went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So this is the first recorded incident of imminent domain, where the state takes property that it wants from you and makes you give it to them. So this idea of the false witnesses. Okay, point five. Wittingly appearing and pleading for an evil cause, right? If you argue for an evil cause, and you know that it's evil, that is sin. That's a type of lying. <coughs> Outfacing or overbearing the truth. Okay, this means like using domineering behavior or charismatic emotional appeal behavior to push people to believe falsehood. Right? You're trying to outface or overbear the truth. We. A lot of times people talk about this now and they use the term gaslighting. Okay, that's, that's that idea. Outfacing or overbearing the truth. Passing unjust sentence. Not, not a verdict, sentence. So think about this. Obviously, an unjust verdict, saying that the guilty is innocent or the innocent is guilty, that's obviously unjust. And it's a violation of the Ninth Commandment. But... Giving a sentence that's unjust, giving a punishment that's unjust, is, is a type of a violation of the Ninth Commandment. If you demand too much or too little of somebody for what has been done, that is a type of violation of the Ninth Commandment. God gives certain maximums for types of crimes in terms of punishments. He also gives minimums for some crimes. And so this teaches us about just sentencing. Point eight, calling evil good and good evil. Right. So those are just type of lies. And they discourage truth-telling, and they encourage people to wickedness. Rewarding the wicked according to the work of the righteous, and the righteous according to the work of the wicked. So there's the unjust verdicts, so to speak. Forgery. And so there's no right to make forgeries for the sake of doing good. Uh, a, lot of time, a lot of people recently, including Christian leaders, were telling people that it was lawful, for example, to make false fake cards for the vax, and to say, you know, hey, it's lawful to to not get the vax and to not, you know, and to just have this card that says you did and to just represent that and to give this forgery saying that you got it. Well, that is not okay. We are not allowed to lie to bring about good. We should do the good and we should accept the consequences. So you just say, no, I'm not going to do it. We can fight. We can be martyred. We can accept loss. We can't lie. Page six, concealing the truth. It's not always evil to conceal the truth, but when someone has a right to information, it is a sin to keep it from them. Lawful authorities doing investigation, someone you have an agreement with, okay? it's not sin to hide or conceal information from a person with no right to the information. It would be a sin to give damaging information to evil persons who have no right to the information in such a way as to empower them to do more evil. So imagine you are a soldier and you are captured and they say, tell us where your friends are. If you tell them, you are sinning. You do not give information to betray your fellow soldiers to the enemy. So concealing the truth is only sin when you're concealing the truth from somebody who has a right to it. For lawful authority or someone you have an agreement with. Or something about their own stuff. Undue silence and a just cause. Right? There are times when we are obligated 
to speak for the defense of justice, for the defense of truth, and if we are silent when there is a duty to speak, that is sin. Holding our peace when iniquity calls for either reproof from ourselves or complaint to others. Okay? If you see somebody committing a sin against somebody under your own authority, it's your job to rebuke if it's something that you would have stopped if it were happening to you. If you see somebody harming somebody under somebody else's authority and you would stop it if it were to you or you know, to someone under your authority, you have a calling to bring it to the attention of the person who can address it. So William Perkins in his book Christian Equity, or sometimes it's titled Christian Moderation, or Epiakeia, which is the Greek word, he talks about things that we may show equity in and allow uh, to not be dealt with versus the things that we should. So this is helping you to identify things that you are called to reprove or complain about. So first, things that are doubtful, you give a charitable interpretation. We talked about that. Second, there are things that you can overlook and bear with in terms of weaknesses or natural infirmities of others without confronting them. And this is obvious. The scriptures make this plain. Look at Proverbs 19.11. The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. It's your glory to overlook a transgression. Now, 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us about the nature of love. Agape. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. That can be translated as keeps no record of evils. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Right? The idea is it bears with others' weaknesses. It believes that the truth of God will prevail. It believes charitably about others. It hopes in the victory of the truth, the victory of God's word, the victory of Christ, the filling of the earth with the knowledge of God. It endures through all of the difficulties. So overlooking and bearing with weaknesses, it's a glory. Sometimes you can give up rights or not press rights that you have in order to have peace or for somebody else's good. That's another way you can forbear. You can quickly forgive, either when somebody's fully repented or even when they've given you a repentance that might not have all the details that you'd want, you can, you can be quick to forgive private and personal wrongs without exacting any restitution or a drawn-out discussion. These are all things that you can do to help to encourage peace. If you never do these things, your life will be nothing but a continual dripping of conflict resolution. If you do these things frequently, you will find that first everybody will go, whoa, this guy has Christian moderation. That's exactly the words they'll use, by the way. This guy has Christian moderation. 
or they'll say FBK. I say, whoa. The other thing is, you will get way more done. And many times, it will cause people's consciences to be convicted by watching how your, you behave and take offenses and turn the other cheek and go the extra mile and do all that stuff. Hey, but there are times when it's your job. It's your duty. It's your obligation to raise a concern. Hey, so here's the language that William Perkins uses. First, if there's a settled malice, I'm not going to explain that. I'm sure you all get it. No, okay. If there's a settled malice, what does that mean? It means that someone is showing hatred about something in a way where they are not being moved. They're not being persuaded. They have a settled position of hatred against neighbor in rejection of the clear teaching about what the Word of God teaches. Okay, so a settled hatred, a settled opposition to their brother. Another would be a cankered corruption. A cankered corruption. This is a painful displeasure at the clear teaching of God. So one, the settled malice is sort of against a person, and the cankered corruption is sort of their, you know, whiny baby response to the clear teaching of the Bible. Ah, I don't really like that. I don't think that's true. That is, you go, all right, we've got to press in on this thing. This thing, we're lancing this. Okay, so that, that is the cankered corruption against the plain teaching of the doctrine of the Word of God. The other things that would call for a reproof or grievous or outrageous transgressions, things that are just, you know, it's obvious that you've got to deal with it. It's like a top-level thing in one of the Ten Commandments. It's a, it's a crime, a biblical crime. Remember, how do you know the difference between a crime and a sin in the Bible? Crimes are the things where God attaches a civil penalty. Okay, so here's a sin, and here's a penalty associated with it. That's a crime in the Bible. So those are examples of sins that are so grievous that they must be dealt with. You have to rebuke them. Things that are a harmful, visible example to others. So it's visible, and if it were followed, it would be harmful. Harms that it caused to others, especially those who are under your authority, that you would not bear with if they were done to yourself. And it's an application of the do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you wouldn't think it's legitimate for you to bear with it, and somebody under your authority is being harassed with it, you need to seek to protect them from that. So these are the cases where William Perkins says, here's how you can find things that you're called to reprove. Page 7. Speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end or perverting it to a wrong meaning or in doubtful and equivocal expressions to the prejudice of truth or justice. Okay? So, speaking truth unseasonably, what does that mean? It's picking a time for telling the truth, for that particular truth, that is bad. Or using means for telling the truth that are unhelpful for it. Uh, what does it mean to maliciously speak the truth? It's speaking the truth with a hateful motive. 
to a wrong end. It's to pick a goal that's evil. You're telling the truth in order to accomplish something evil. What about, what does it mean to pervert the truth to a wrong meaning? Well, you can say something that's true with the intention of causing it to be misunderstood. Okay, you can, you can say something is true for the purpose of trying to cause somebody to misunderstand what you're saying. You're trying to say true words and get them to believe falsehood. You're perverting it to a wrong meaning. So you could quote somebody, and we, we, in, our, in, our, in our time, the way of saying is we often say, You're, you took that out of context. Okay? So perverting it to a wrong meaning. Or in doubtful and equivocal expressions. So using equivocation, using words that have multiple meanings in order to try to communicate a, a truth in a way that is intended to cause falsehood to be believed to the prejudice of truth or justice as you're using forms of words that is likely to be misunderstood and to result in wrong beliefs while still being an acceptable form of words when explained this is the tool of heretics heretics love this tool they love finding ways to try to get you to hear them and understand the false doctrine that they want you to understand but to find a way where it's explainable when they get caught the hands in the cookie jar, and they say, Mom said I could have a cookie. When? Five days ago. Yeah. Fifteen. Speaking untruth, lying, slandering. So speaking untruth is, is you know, it might be an irrational statement. Uh, you're not communicating truth. Um, words that are worthless. Lying, uh, statements that communicate falsehood. Slandering, communicating falsehood about a person to the harm of their reputation. Backbiting, detracting, tailbearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling. Okay, whoa. Backbiting, there's a fun one. Imagine that. Person like piranhaing your back. Okay, what is backbiting? Backbiting is attacking people when they're not present. It's, it's, it's slander when they're gone or behind their back. Detracting is undermining the honor of a person. Tailbearing is gossip. So, and remember, we've talked about gossip. Gossip is talking about something that is negative or information that is confidential, that is not the business of the person you're talking to, and that they do not have power to help to resolve the problem. Okay, so. They either need to be helping you to solve the problem or it needs to be their business if you're going to communicate about confidential information or you're going to communicate about something negative. What is whispering? You've heard of a whisper campaign? Whispering is secretive gossip. It's trying to gossip and to get away with it with nobody knowing about it. Secretive gossip. Scoffing is mocking lawful honor that's owed. And reviling is expressing hatred for the lawful honor of another. Then 17, what's that? Rash, harsh, and partial censuring. Okay, so rash censuring is doing something too fast or 
without any sort of process. It's just you're moving too fast. You're just you're just censuring rashly. You're censuring a person. You're rebuking a person without giving proper process. Harsh censuring is censuring too aggressively or too harshly. It's being too um, too intense in negativity for what is being censured. And partial censuring is censuring because of who somebody is rather than what they've done or censuring somebody and letting others fly free for doing the same things. So partiality, unjust weights and measures, not, um, not dealing with people with the same scales, the same standards, the rejection of the equality of the law. 18, misconstruing intentions, words, and actions. So somebody does something and you try to put it in the worst light without some sort of evidence to back that up. So misconstruing intentions, words, and actions. 19, flattering, vainglorious boasting. So flattering is a positive lie about somebody else. I guess you can also flatter yourself, but that's typically done in the form of vainglorious boasting. That's a positive lie about yourself. Okay? 8.20 So the ninth commandment forbids us from thinking or speaking too highly or too meanly of ourselves or others and denying the gifts and graces of God. So thinking or speaking too highly or too meanly of ourselves. If we think too highly that is a false confidence in ourselves and somebody else. If we speak too lowly it's a false humility. We are called to speak with true humility acknowledging the gifts and graces of God in ourselves and in others. A failure to see or to acknowledge natural abilities or supernatural gifts is a way of blaspheming God. And it is a lie about others and harms their reputation, harms your own reputation. And so we are forbidden to do that. 21. We are forbidden from aggravating smaller faults, whether it's in ourselves or others. But making failures or making weaknesses into things that are bigger than they really are Ignoring the context that would mitigate being partial in order to tear down. These are the kinds of things there. So when um, we need to be careful, the, the particular, it's particularly tempting in conflict to you see errors on the other heart of the other person. So if somebody brings a big accusation against yourself, it's tempting to take small things that they did and try to kind of like make them fill out of the space. And so that we need to be careful to not aggravate smaller faults. Also, if you just don't like a person or you're frustrated with a person or you want to get rid of the person, aggravating smaller faults is a thing. It often results in looking petty, but sometimes it's successful in tearing down people. Sometimes it's successful in tearing down people. 22. We are forbidden from hiding, excusing, or extenuating of sins. In other words, we don't, we don't, want, to, we don't want to emphasize all the mitigations for ourselves. When we're called to a free confession. So if you're called to a free confession, you don't hide it, you don't conceal it, you don't excuse it and say, oh, that wasn't bad, and you don't just focus on all the mitigating elements. You acknowledge the places where you failed. This shows up a lot of the time in apologies or in defenses where you give all the reasons why it wasn't a big deal, which undermines the apology. And so it's important when you're confessing a failure to not emphasize the ways in which it was small. 23. Unnecessary discovering of infirmities. So 
We don't want to go looking around for all the failings of other people. We are not inquisitors. Okay? We are trying to avoid putting on display each other's weaknesses. Okay? We all live in glass houses and there's too many rocks. So what we want to do is we want to recognize that our desire is as opposed to walking in and finding Noah naked and drunk on the ground and mocking him and telling our brothers, like Ham, what we want to do is be like Shem and Japheth, and we want to walk backward into the tent to avoid seeing the nakedness of our father and bring in a covering, and then we leave without looking. Right? That, that's our goal, is to help to fix stuff and to avoid the unnecessary exposing of people and of weaknesses. Now, sometimes when you have to go in and you have to deal with something or you're dealing with a conflict, you've just got to deal with things and there's uncovering. And the uncovering, where our goal is to avoid unnecessarily uncovering negative things, and when we're in conflict and we're dealing with stuff, we try to deal with everything, tidy it back up, and resolve and be at peace. And so when we're, when we're overlooking, we're trying to participate in that covering in love. When something has to be rebuked, we are inherently uncovering. And so that becomes a necessary exposing of infirmities. And a discovering can occur in that process. 24, raising false rumors. So this can not even be gossip, not even be slander. It's just a false rumor. And this is, seems to largely be the operation of news websites in our time. 25, receiving and countenancing evil reports and stopping our ears against just defense. Okay? So we, if we encourage people to bring us bad news about other people and we give them positive countenance, we reward it, we encourage gossip, evil reports, negative things, even slanders. And also, if when bad news comes to us, we don't hear a defense against it. So stopping our ears against a just defense. If, there's, if we've heard a report, guess what? You now have a duty to deal with hearing defenses about it. Evil suspicions. That's, evil suspicion is interpreting things in a negative way without a basis. So you, know, you walk up and you say hi, and I go, that hi, he was just trying to remind me of this negative thing that happened to throw me off before I preach. He just wants to make me preach poorly. The guy walked up and said, hi, he shook my hand. But there would be evil suspicion about the motive of the greeting. So, evil suspicion. This is negative interpretation without evidence. Okay? You can stupidly have a Pollyanna interpretation of things when you have evidence that's negative. You can also evilly take neutral or positive things and make them negative. So evil suspicion is something. So evil suspicion is the opposite of charitable interpretation. Charitable interpretation takes something as neutral and you assume it's positive. Or you take something as negative but ambiguous and you assume it's positive. You see something positive and you make sure that you interpret it as having a positive intention behind it. Evil suspicion tries to take all those things and, and move to the, to the negative. It's ambiguous, assume the worst. It's neutral, assume the worst. It's positive, must be an evil motive. Okay, That's evil suspicion. 27. Envying or grieving at the deserved credit of any, endeavoring or desiring to impair it, rejoicing in their disgrace and infamy. Okay, so somebody does something good, 
we should give them credit, we should praise it. If we envy that praise, if we grieve at that praise, right, that shows our covetousness. And maybe I'm the only guy in the room, but I have perhaps had some time where I have heard something good about somebody else and envied for it or been sad that they got the positive instead of me. Maybe that's just me. Maybe my heart of darkness is so much worse than all of yours. But I imagine you have all had that response to something at some point in your life. And so that is an evil desire. That's a breaking of the Tenth Commandment. So envying or grieving at the deserved credit of any. Endeavoring or desiring to impair it. Trying to downplay it. Well, that's not that impressive. That's not that hard. Yeah, I know people have done that. They're not that smart. That's not that good. It's not that hard to do. I did that when I was ten. Um, so the, that desire to minimize what has been accomplished. The rejoicing in their disgrace and infamy. So in other words, when something bad happens, going, oh, that means they're real bad. Um, rejoicing in it, dancing around. Um, those are the things that are evil responses to hearing bad reports about others. Scornful contempt. Scorn is hatred and contempt is hatred, so it's kind of hateful hate. Okay, this is like hateful mocking hate. It's bad hate. Don't do that. So that's taking an overly negative view of somebody. It's sort of like it's evil suspicion targeted at a particular individual. So scornful contempt of a particular person. That guy is the worst. I hate him so much. Okay, everything they do is bad. It's just a scornful contempt of a person. The opposite of that is fond admiration. When, when you, everything the person does is gold. This guy's great. It's fantastic. He was blaspheming God the other day. What do you mean? He didn't mean it. It was a joke, tastefully done. <coughs> Maybe. Maybe you misheard it. Fond admiration is this overly positive view of a person that is unjustified. It kind of results in never letting something stick to them. A person's Teflon. When that, you know, that kind of thing. 30. Breach of lawful promises. So failing to do something that you promised to do and it would not be sinned to fulfill it. That is a violation of the Ninth Commandment. 31. Neglecting such things are of a good report. Okay, so in the positive side we saw do the stuff that is true and honest and lovely and of good report. Neglecting to do that is sin. 32, in practicing or not avoiding ourselves or not hindering what we can in others, such things as procure an ill name. So we want to avoid doing things to procure an ill name for ourselves and we want to help others to avoid that. That's what the Ninth Commandment requires. These are principles that you use going into the process. This is something you need to meditate on a lot. This was a long list of stuff. The law of God is supposed to be meditated on day and night. And that is because there is so much. And why? The law of God is simple in that it can be summarized in the love of God. It can be summarized in the love of God, love neighbor. It can be summarized in the Ten Commandments. But it's also complex in that it can be broken out into impressive detail that is sufficient to cover all of life and every meaningful choice. And so the law of God is this glorious, simple, and complex system. And it requires that we meditate on it so that we can be renewed 
after the image of Christ, so he would be sanctified. Because the second use of the law, as we are aware of the law, our conscience becomes sharper and it restrains us from evil. It's a chain that binds us from wickedness. And it becomes a light, a lamp unto our feet that helps us to see the path, the way that we should go. It shows us the right behavior, the right things to do. It shows us where we ought to go. And so the law of God is worthy of our thoughts. It will drive us to Christ for salvation. It will help us to avoid evil, and it will help us to do what is wise. Matthew 18 is a summary for us of how the conflict resolution process goes. This does not list out all of the exceptions. It does not list out all of the details. It gives to us the general roadmap of how conflict works in three major steps. Matthew 18, verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That is the general condition that we are to apply. There needs to be reason why you would not go and talk to somebody alone. There has to be a justification. That is the general condition. When there is an offense between you and somebody else, that is the general condition. And it is assumed that it is private, that you are the only two that are a part of it and the only two that are witnesses of it. And therefore, that is where you go first because you are seeking to unnecessarily uncover and publicize feelings. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Okay? This also is more efficient. It reduces the number of people that have to be involved in a conflict. And if it's resolved by the discussion, you both probably have learned more truth. You both will probably have a stronger relationship. And the brother is gained. 16. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So this idea of the two or three witnesses is in many places in the scripture. And this idea is, how do you escalate it? This is step two, the second conversation, or this might be you've had multiple conversations at the first stage, but the point is, you've now at the second phase where you weren't able to resolve it through private discussion, and so you're trying to bring in others in order to increase its publicity, increase the pressure for resolution, increase the pressure to keep going. You're trying to help the other person to think about it more seriously. You're trying to bring other voices in to help people to analyze it and discuss it and try to resolve it and bring peace about. And they are witnessing so that they are able to bear testimony to the court if there is not resolution so that the court can determine who is right and who is wrong on the testimony of two or three witnesses. 17. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. So that would be the public court of the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, or the church hears the case, judges against him, then he doesn't repent. Let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So this is excommunication. He's no longer to be considered like a Christian. He's supposed to be like a heathen, and not only a heathen, but like a person who is a pariah, a tax collector, who takes things from you, who harms you. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So in other words, the court where the Lord Jesus Christ sits on his throne 
is manifested from heaven into the church on earth. It is the judgment seat of Christ. Again, assuredly, I say to you that if two or three of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. This is the text to show what is the minimum necessary for a church. Two or three. Two or three believers. And so even, even if just two or three believers have formed a covenanted body with a court, and they are resolving conflict, and they have to make a public judgment, that they should not look at the smallness of their numbers and think this judgment is irrelevant. This judgment doesn't matter. It has no power. It is the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has absolute authority in heaven and earth. If it is a lawful authority, it is the authority of Christ. And the numbers do not matter. We do not determine truth or power or authority by counting noses. Truth, authority, and power are determined by the Lord God Almighty. So do not mock church courts, be they even of two or three people. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. The presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in that court it is the judgment of Christ. It is his authority and presence and power. That is what a church court is. It is the judgment of Christ if the judgment is made in truth if it's made in accordance with his word, if it's made with evidence that is lawfully accepted, it is the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is a power of the church when rightfully exercising the keys to bring curse in order to cause repentance. That Satan would come and scourge the flesh for the saving of the soul. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would cause the preaching of your word to build us up in the knowledge of you, that we would rightly apply conflict resolution and take seriously the things that you have revealed. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights?